Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, January the 20th, as Toronto continues to dig out from Monday's walloping storm, shutting down the DVP and the Gardner at the same time. We're still talking about that, and we're talking about sidewalks. And a gentleman who was the former mayor of Toronto, who was on city council, actually, and a member of the TTC, when the military was famously called in in January of 1999, 23 years ago, to deal with the after effects of a massive storm that dumped just a little more snow than what we just got last Monday. David Miller uh, on the show. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star is with us as well. And we get into education issues from day one of school being back in person. It's all coming up next on the Toronto Today podcast. Uh, we'll get this localized in a little bit. There's a lot happening in the UK that people reacted to yesterday in Ontario. And I am not uh, without suspicion that what's happening in the United Kingdom, they're going to drop restrictions. They're going to drop masks. They're going to do this, do that. There is a political bent to it. But if we're going to say that, you do get that there's a political bent to what happened here on January 3rd. You get that, right? There's an election coming up in Ontario in four and a half months. We will be fresh into campaigning oh april and may is going to be great political ads everywhere signs at least we'll all see our lawns again lawn signs are going to go missing (laughs) signs are going to be defaced love that time of year spring flowers and election signs what's better than that so uh i'm going to get to a couple things from the united kingdom in a little bit i did think we got a lot to cover from yesterday um we were previewing on the show a little bit yesterday on toronto today um, that Christine Elliott would speak around 10.30. She did that. She talked about some of the trends with COVID. Some of what she said was accurate. Um, we are. She's talked about the glimmer of hope. Well, I don't think it's a glimmer of hope. I think it's a cascade of hope from some of the numbers and some of the numbers that things didn't necessarily get to. And later today, Doug Ford will announce, the Premier will announce a lifting of restrictions. And people have said to me, um, you know, to be honest, people have said to me, well, what do you what do you think about this one? What should come first? And and it's the restaurant owners, but you've talked a lot about, you know, youth sports and, and whatnot. And I'm like, um, all of it. All of it was bad. Okay. Lockdown's taken a lot. COVID restrictions have stolen a lot from all of us. And I can't think of one. And I'm gonna double down, triple down, quadruple down on this. I can't think of one on January third that I I truly believe in my heart of hearts and my mind of minds that have crunched the numbers and made it so. You might be able to have a conversation with me about huge crowds at sports venues, but you would not be able to have that the conversation with me about restaurants, about gyms with phenomenal ventilation, fully vaccinated people, healthier people than average for the most part. What? Okay, am I being classist here? Is this is this the argument when somebody doesn't like the idea of, of us hammering on lockdowns and you get called ableist? That's happening everywhere right now. Let me point out two things that are happening everywhere right now is that you're being called if you're like, well, I, you know, maybe kids should be in, in school and maybe, uh, well, what about kids that can't go? That's ableist. Oh, okay. Well, what were we doing before 2019? What were we doing before March of 2020? Where we we need to make things accessible. We need to level the playing field to make something accessible to absolutely everybody. Absolutely, that's true. You think about a, a bygone era where we didn't have you know wheelchair ramps to go into stadiums. There wasn't you know special seating accommodated. It was very very difficult for people to uh, you know access airports and buses. And we've we've come so far. We have to go further. But I'm sorry because you can't do something shouldn't mean 24 other people can. We do get that, right? Like, And I think the vast majority of people who um, who are you know wanting to press forward also understand that. And people who may be immunocompromised don't want other people uh, holding up their entire lives and pushing their mental health absolutely to the side and to the corner. They don't want them us doing that for them. They don't want that, okay? Um, so look, there's been a lot of people that have been diagnosed with new things over lockdown. There's people that have had are suffering from things that haven't even been able to see nurses or doctors in person or get physiotherapy. I can go on and on. I can't believe the stories I've heard from people about this. So when people say to me, oh, what's the first thing? Is it restaurants? Is it gyms? It's all of them. 
I don't think this worked. I don't think this was necessary. I don't think this helped. I don't see data that would suggest that spread of COVID or Omicron in the gym or the restaurants would have put this many X amount of people more in hospital wards right now, in intensive care. I don't. I don't see evidence that putting a five-year-old in a mask seven hours a day, five days a week is going to prevent hospitalizations and intensive care bed usage. And so much right now, we can have the discussion, right? We can have the discussion about um, whether we've got a staff shortage. Of course we can. Absolutely, that's something we should almost be talking more about instead of, well, this could happen, so we need to close these things up. Never again. And the never again should have been uttered considerably more on January 2nd. I know how I felt when I woke up that day and knew that this was coming, and you probably do also. And so seeing kids go back to school, teachers go back to school, where the vast, vast majority of them want to be, and I'll get to that a little later on the show. Don't you worry about that. Um, But the vast majority of things that we ended up doing here just felt like massive, massive mistakes. Like our hearts are a little weakened by this. COVID has weakened our hearts. Grief has weakened our hearts. And you can't play this game anymore. Like, ah, come on. It's not for very long. It's all been for very long. It's all been grim. It's uh, Our fates have been determined for us to some extent by some of what has transpired here. So I think everything, I think everything was a massive mistake in terms of closing it up. Like, I can't, I can't even look and say, well, yeah, we got to get youth sports back, but not restaurants. Well, why not restaurants? What were they doing so wrong? What was transpiring? I don't have an answer on that. Now, um, let me pivot here to schools. Um, parents did say this yesterday uh, that kids didn't get the right masks provided by the province of Ontario. And we're going to talk about that with Sheba Siddiqui in just a little bit. But it is a problem and we have to do better. So if staff members have to wear uh, masks indoors, okay, and elementary school students and high school students have to wear masks indoors, all that's pretty crucial to make sure the masks fit properly. The fit matters. So uh, there were three ply cloths, thicker cloth masks that the government of Ontario gave students. But this seems to be a universal truth here is that they didn't fit. And whether or not where they were made and how inexpensively they were made, I won't say is immaterial, no pun intended, because it matters. But I see this quote in the Toronto Star this morning from Dr. Dina Kulik. If a mask, quote, doesn't fit properly, it's useless. Mm-hmm. It's, quote, important to have a well-fit mask that's touching all areas of the face. Also true. Okay. So lots of people, uh, you know, went on social media. Here's my kid wearing a province-supplied mask. Doesn't fit the face. It's not fitted properly. Yeah, that's a problem. Big, large gaps mean you may as well not be wearing anything. Now, that said, here we go. Let's talk logical and logically and honestly about this. We got told around December by many experts, the cloth masks, they don't work anymore. They don't they won't do much against Omicron. But they were what iron fortresses for the previous three and a half months and lunch. And I'm going to get to that as well on the show today. Uh, Parents, you know, emailing me and complaining their kids at all ages of elementary school were not even allowed to talk during lunch not even communicate with other students during lunch. There, and, and it's been pretty uh, pretty militant, the enforcement of that from grade one teachers all the way up through elementary school. That's a problem. Um, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But um, yeah, if so if this is all just a farce, if we're going to play the game that cloth masks don't work against Omicron whatsoever, if we're going to play that game, then you're going to tell me that for three and a half months this year, when no 5 to 11-year-olds were vaccinated, and we opened schools, and um, cases dropped from the summer, and hospitalizations dropped from the summer. What are you going to tell me about the effect of the cloth masks there? That that was why that cases and, and hospitalizations were dropped when kids had gym class, when kids were playing indoor sports, when soccer teams got went from outdoor to indoor, and hockey started up and all that stuff. So what's the farce? That that cloth masks didn't work, don't work, and now N95s are again this iron fortress. No doubt they seem to be better, but uh, many kids aren't going to wear it, and many parents aren't going to put their kid, especially vaccinated high school kids, in uh, in N95 masks. By the way, I got one kid that comes home for 
lunch because we're right around the corner in eighth grade. So he's not there eating anyway and, ha- and hasn't really stayed for lunch for a, a long time now. Maybe all of COVID, the more I think about it. And I got a 10th grader. I said, what, what happened at lunch today? And uh, sometimes they walk, right? There's a ton of places around there. So they'll walk to Pizza Pizza or Wendy's or get a taco or whatever. And I, that's great. You're socializing. You're outside. All good. That'd be great in any era, let alone a COVID era. But uh, he said, oh, we just ate our, you know, we're allowed to sit in the hallway on the floor. Fantastic. And eat our lunch. I said, anybody bugging you about talking? No. And I'm like, thank you. That's fine. That's fine. If you're uh, honestly, if you're going to the wall as a teacher and, um, you know, chastising and and keeping names in a book about six-year-olds that happen to be speaking to each other during lunch while they pull their mask down so they can take a tiny bite of food or a sip of their chocolate milk. We've lost our way. I don't know how we get it back, but it's inarguable that we've lost our way if that's what we're doing. Hey, Greg, the school board enforces that regulation. Hey, Greg, that's from that's coming from the Ministry of Education. Fine, yes, so, is, so are speeding regulations. The idea of enforcing it and tut-tutting, kids talking. For If you're a boosted teacher, three shots, and you're 32 years old, and you're chastising kids for whispering and talking to each other, we gotta find a better way than that. And you specifically have to find a better way uh, and and maybe a little less to worry about, okay? Uh, that's unbelievable. I'll talk about that a little later on in the show. I want you to hear this. A new uh, Labour MP has decided to cross over in the UK. They did this yesterday, and uh, uh, it's rather remarkable. Boris Johnson says no more masks at some point in time. There will be masks on public transit, et cetera, et cetera. But we are, we're making a shift here. And as I said at the start of the segment, no doubt it's political. No doubt it's meant as a distraction. But to some fully vaccinated, three times vaccinated healthy people and their families, how could there not be a sense of relief? This political scandal, Boris Johnson's ensconced in, may actually benefit society and move the ball forward. But this Labour MP, Christian Wakeford, explains his defection to Labour from the Conservatives, saying he gave it a lot of thought. There's been a lot of you know, build-up to this and a lot of soul-searching that's taken many sleepless nights. Um, but it's, it's ultimately the, the right decision, and I, I hope my former colleagues can you know, associate, if they don't agree, can understand that. Yeah, it's it's going to be really, really interesting. I mean, look, we've had moments here, right, with the unvaccinated MPs, the Roman Baber situation uh, where he complained about the lockdowns and was instantly out of the Ontario PC party. The health minister, I want to get to this really quick, the health minister for the entire country of, uh, of Great Britain, uh, excuse me, the United Kingdom, uh, was on Good Morning Britain this morning. It's all, it's all really something to keep together, but we can do it. Sajid Javid is the uh, MP uh, there and the health secretary, and he says this isn't about politics, uh, about party gate and putting the scandal behind them. The decision to drop the masks and move forward in the United Kingdom is based on data. Of course, we've been monitoring that probably hour by hour, not just day by day, and it's based on the, on, on the advice of our clinical uh, advisors, some of the best uh, in the world. And, and what they have seen in the data, you know, thankfully, is that we are starting to turn the situation around as a country. Uh, our advisors believe that we've reached the peak of uh, case numbers. We've reached the peak of hospitalizations. Hospitalizations in some parts of the country, uh, they are falling. In other parts, they have stabilized. So they're certainly not rising. And of course, that is good. There's still, uh, it's fair to say, there's still a lot of pressure on hospitals and the NHS workers are, are still working incredibly hard doing a fantastic job but we've always said that these restrictions should only be in place for as long as absolutely necessary because they have a big impact on the rest of society yeah massive impact and that doesn't sound much different than where we're going right now and how we feel here about our particular scenario i'll read you this tweet this comes from a toronto grade one class i asked my daughter again this is asher honickman different school but also grade one And she confirms the kids are not to speak to one another during lunch. In looking out for the best interests of our children, Asher writes, we have completely missed the forest for the trees. And our number, by the way, is 416-870-6400. So we'll line you up uh, and let you react to this. And you can tell us how the first day of school went and what your expectations are for school going forward. This is a very school-centric segment here. We'll keep it that way. Dear Families... We have three staff members who supervise the children during the 10 eating times each week. 
So I'm assuming there's a snack in there plus the five lunches. We expect the children to follow the lunchroom COVID safety rules. The children are expected to face the front of the classroom at all times, stay sitting in their seat, raise their hand if they need help opening a container or need to leave the room to go to the washroom, place their mask back on before speaking to the duty teacher, not speak when their mask is off. This means it is a silent eating time. Put their mask back on and pack up their lunch bag when the warning bell rings. I want to get your feel for that at 416-870-6400. Unfortunately, I'm not done. If a child speaks with their mask off, their name will be recorded and parents will be contacted to review our COVID safety rules. Grade one student gets this. They're six years old. If a child speaks with their mask off, their name will be recorded and parents will be contacted to review our COVID safety rules. It is at lunchtime that we are at our greatest risk of spreading any airborne illnesses. If we follow our COVID safety rules, we can minimize the risk. Please review these rules with your child before our return to school on Monday. Yours in partnership. Who this comes from is cut off. I assume it would come from a principal or a vice principal. I don't think it would come from a school board. Um, it certainly wouldn't be something coming um, from you know the union. But uh, that's problematic for me. I'm asking again, is this who we are, what we want to be, and what do you make of these regulations for kids 6 to 13? I'm not going to tell you that everything has been done properly for educators in school. Of course I'm not. They've been hung out to dry. They've been left to scramble on their own. And that's been the case for a large part of this pandemic. There is a tension and an underlying ugliness to the relationship between this provincial government and teachers' unions. Is it 100% one group's fault and 0% the other? No. But I do think there's been some provocational poking by the government towards the teacher unions, and it has been reciprocated by an awful lot of sniping. Okay? Neither side likes each other. I don't know how we can turn the tension down on this, and I don't know how what we do, what we do, if the Ford government gets reelected. But I would say this. You have to, someone has to be the bigger person here. Someone, and, and guess what? Guess what? 95% of teachers are. 9 out of 10, 19 out of 20. Uh, you're doing amazing work. And we thank you for what yesterday was. You walked into the classroom and said, I'm healthy. I'm boosted. I got three shots. Okay. And yes, the government should have made that a priority much, much earlier. And I've got, I've got a better mask than they were allowing me to wear. And by the way, don't lay that at the doorstep of the provincial government specifically. Maybe some of you should have contacted your school boards or your unions. And maybe those unions and school boards should have said, oh, you can wear whatever makes you feel the safest. Absolutely. You do have to wear one at a certain point in time, but you can wear what you want instead of a thin blue surgical mask. But remember, again, we just had an era, a three-month span in which schools opened most people were vaccinated. Some kids were vaccinated. My high school student and grade 8 student were fully vaccinated. More kids were vaccinated over 12 than were not, by a mile. And most teachers were fully vaccinated with the two shots going into the fall year. And many people predicted doom, gloom, chaos. They lacked safety. They lacked this. They lacked that. And uh, I know how that went over with people who work in essential workplaces. I know how that went over with people who work in warehouses and grocery stores. Um, a couple a couple p teachers yesterday, and it's it's the rare exception, but they got attention, are sitting in their car having sit-outs and, uh, and basically broadcasting it to the planet. Because if you didn't broadcast that you were protesting your unsafe work environment, you know, 45, 48-year-old person, boosted N95 mask, but you're in peril. Okay. Like, spend four hours working at Sobeys or President's Choice. Do that. Like, what are you, Karen Silkwood? Are you working with plutonium on a regular? What are you, Norma Ray? It's remarkable. But again, that's what social media does sometimes. I'm sure we've all fallen victim to it, where there's a look-at-me moment. Look at how brave I am. Look at the stand I'm making. And I heard from enough teachers about it yesterday. Believe me about a couple of their colleagues. Believe me did I hear about it. What's your reaction to this note? Six-year-olds, their, their name's going into a book, and parents are going to be called, and they're going to call you and tell you, 
Jenny or Johnny took off their mask to speak during lunch. We can't be having that. Do something about it, parents. Like you're not dealing with enough right now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm with you, teachers. I'm with you all the way. I fight for the things that you didn't get. You needed better masks. You needed smaller class sizes. But we have an election in June. Use your vote there. Okay? If, you, if you're that unsafe, you know, stay home. If, if you are feeling safe and confident like the vast majority of you are, do your job. You're awesome at it. We count on you. We rely on you. We believe in you. Jim, you're on uh, tr- uh, Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's absolutely ridiculous because the simple point of all this is our educational system is nothing but an absolute joke, and teachers are a big responsibility to that. If you look at across the world and all these other countries, how better their children are doing in education compared to a G7 country, Canada, our teachers are an absolute joke. And as parents are the ones that are going to stand up for all of this. And at the end of it, the teachers are going to regret everything that they've done to our children. Well, that's a little harsh for me. You're allowed your opinion, but that's a little harsh for me. I think it's like any other industry. I think it's like every other industry I've looked at. The vast majority of people want to do their job. They know what their responsibility is. They're also they're also well aware that they're compensated for it. And you go in and you do it. Okay, you put you put things aside. You store things um, on the shelf that are bothering you, that are quote unquote triggering you, and you come in and you do your work. And ev- practically every teacher uh, I heard from yesterday walked into the classroom confident and sat in front of their kids or stood in front of their kids, and they did what they do best, and that's teach. There's curriculum issues. There's funding issues. There's plenty of issues. We can't waste any more time over petty politics. Some of the stuff's important. Some of the stuff's really important about where we're going. Universities, I don't even have time to get to that this morning. Universities is probably going to be the last kind of COVID domino to fall, and it, it feels like you're, oh, you know, oh, you're poor 21-year-old in a residence or whatever. But they looked forward to that their whole lives. Parents saved money for them going to that their whole lives. And they're getting utterly shortchanged by the experience right now, let alone some of the changes that are happening on university campuses. Ariana, I wanted to get to you. You're on uh, Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'll I'm, be brief. Um I'm an I'm actually an elementary school teacher. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to share that um, our kids are quiet at lunch. Period. End of story. They're a lot smarter and sharper than we give them credit for. They are capable. Well, they know they'll get into trouble if they're talking or yelling too much because that's where we're know. at in the last two years. That did, wait, were you yeah. quiet? Were, were you and I quiet at lunchtime when we were in first or second grade? There's no way that we were, Ariana. No way. Well, we didn't, we didn't have a pandemic, but our students are quiet. They they do follow the instructions, and if they talk. We tell them to stop talking and they, and they stop. Why so do you do that? Why do we tell them to stop talking yeah. while they're having lunch? Yeah. Well, we just remind them about the pandemic. Okay. They're, they're very they're, respectful. They're, they're, they're very respectful. They, uh, yeah, they comply. Young, younger kids are less likely to ask questions. Younger kids don't, don't know right. Six and seven-year-olds don't oh. know right from wrong like an 18-year-old would. They don't know. <laughs> do you, yeah. Oh, do you think that they do? You think well, a you think a six year old knows right from wrong like an eighteen year old, like you see. It sounded like you took issue with what I said there. No, no, I'm not taking any issue. I'm just saying that we, if if students are talking at lunchtime, we don't call home. We have other things to do. So it's it just seems like the the picture painted is seemed to be that if kids are talking, they get in trouble. Of course not. Well, that's of a directive not, from a principal to tell teachers to call home. So I, I I applaud you for not following that that directive from either a school board or it, it, the name's yeah. cut off at the bottom. But I'm assuming it's a principal. Well, we don't have time for that. We tell the kids to stop talking, and and they stop talking. And we move on with our day because we've got lots to do. When will they be allowed to talk again to each other, to their peers, when they're six or seven years old? When do we allow that again? Well, at lunchtime, because their masks are off, they 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 aren't they don't talk. So they do speak during the day, of course. With with um, masks on, they, so they, they can't see to... each other's faces when they're talking. When when do we when when is that going to be okay again? Next fall? When, well, I don't know. When the pandemic passes, it's the same for adults. I can't see people, my colleagues' faces either. 
Anyways, the point is, it just seems like we're all petty. We we get on the phone when somebody opens their mouth. It's not like that at all. We just don't have time for that. I got, I got you. I, I appreciate you making that distinction. I appreciate that. But I'd say, again, um, it's, it's sending the directive down. Some are going to do it, and I applaud you for not doing it. I don't think every rule uh, needs to be followed in, in a case like this. And again, there's six or seven, okay? Like, I'm not. we're not talking about university students complying with something here. Emma, you're on uh, Toronto today. Thank you very much for the phone call and for waiting. I appreciate the phone call. Oh, great. I just wanted to um, let you know that the, the no talking during lunch is a, a, a directive from the board. It's in our operational guidelines that keep on getting updated. Yeah. So that's, that's not something that, you know, any teacher or any principal um, you know, is asking of the students. The, the majority of teachers I think I'm hearing from would say, I, you know, I, I get that it's a rule, but unless things are really out of hand and kids are right in each other's faces, again, with I, I got it. I understand the protocols. I don't think there's going to be, we just had a teacher say, I wouldn't make that phone call home. And I, and I bet you 99% of teachers won't, but parents don't know that. So I'm glad you're clarifying that. Right. And also the kids eat, they basically eat their lunch in 10 minutes, right? They take off their mask. They eat their lunch and then they go outside and play where in the TDSB they can take their masks off. So it's really just a short period of time where they're just eating and then they put their masks on. And I think we just we all want to stay in school. Mm -hmm. I want my kids to stay in school. So, you know, doing whatever we can to just make that happen. If we're asking our kids to just eat their lunch, eat their sandwich quickly put on your mask, then then it's fine. They're not sitting for an hour in silence eating, you know, getting screamed at because they're talking. It's it's not like that at all. I, I, I And I appreciate the clarity on this. How was yesterday for you in the classroom? How did you feel? You know, good. I want to be back. I hate, I hate virtual. It's not good for me. I teach kindergarten, so obviously yeah. that's not ideal. And I have three elementary-aged kids. Um, and it's not ideal to be... Uh, at home with them while they're online while I'm also teaching so I'm I'm happy to be back and, and I are, want to stay are back. you are you did you were you able to get a booster shot not yet okay and right. but but you feel you feel safe in there you feel completely safe and and um protected you yourself do yeah yeah yeah. Sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm in my school parking lot <laughs> getting uh, yelled at by my custodian. He doesn't even know what I look like without my mask on. Oh, my uh, gosh. You know what? I, don't, I didn't get a booster yet because I got COVID over the holidays. So okay. I'm I'm just waiting a little bit longer. There's, there's no rush then. And you, uh, I'll handle that custodian the next time we talk. Thanks very much for the phone call. One more quick one on this. Brad, you've been waiting to. I want to get you on. Thanks for calling Toronto today and, uh, and 640 Toronto. Go ahead, Brad. Hey, man. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks. So I, I'm listening to this and I'm laughing because... <laughs> First of all, the guy who was talking about the politics, look, I voted Ford in. I vote him in again. It, it's, it, everyone thinks, oh, teachers vote liberal. They're, we're smarter than that, right? I mean, <laughs> well, some vote for all three parties, but, yeah, I don't think teachers vote as a block. I agree with you there. They don't. Break. The liberals right now are a joke. They haven't for a long time. NDP is no political agenda here. Less kids, more kids. I coach four teams at my school. Probably be a fifth team if we get to it. This taking the mask up. Kids are walking through high schools, their masks off. You have to remind them. We're doing our best that way. Like, you know, they're teenagers. Even the young kids, too, it's even tougher. That lady, bless her heart, I mean, she's doing what she can. But the truth of the matter is, is this, is, this pandemic is not going anywhere. This is going to be, so what are we going to do? Kids can't talk. They're not allowed to play on a sports team. They can't live their lives. Give me a break. Why did they all get, why did we get all these kids shots? Why did they all get vaccinated? They got vaccinated. So that they could carry on with their lives. Yeah, especially especially at the high school, especially at the high school level. You you'd be ready to go right now. You'd be ready to say, open everything up. I want to coach again. I want field trips. I want it all. It's listen. It's a joke. And unfortunately, we hear stuff from the board. Mm. We hear we're told to do certain things. I, look, they. I coached uh, uh, soccer back in the fall. We'd have one instance of COVID. I coached two hockey teams. Not one instance of COVID. The kids wear their masks. They do the best they can. Let them get engaged. Let them get involved. Because you know what's killing the system right now? And you know what's killing these kids? Is not being engaged. Not being it's engaged. Not yeah, it's it's in it. Thank you. I got to let you go. It's inactivity. It's a lack of hope. It's on, off, home, school, all that stuff.
The weather's still a big issue today with how cold it is and how things have uh, virtually frozen over. Our next guest uh, was mayor of Toronto during, I think, one memorable snowstorm I remember, but he was also city councillor during the famous one in 1999 when the then mayor, uh, who just passed away a few months ago, so a lot of this was recalled and back to the you know the frontal lobe of our uh, of our memory banks, uh, Mel Lastman was calling in the military in 1999. He is former mayor of Toronto, David Miller. It is great to have you on. Look, you know, six weeks from now, uh, BMO Field's open for TFC. I don't know whether all the snow's gone by then or not. You tell me. <laughs> yeah, let's get right to the important stuff, soccer. Yeah, I'm sure MLSE loves those early March scheduling games. They're looking going, yeah, there might be a couple uh, drifts in the end zone, but uh, what's the big deal? Who cares? You know, yeah, Greg, uh, Canada's supposed to be playing in uh, <laughs> Hamilton. In Hamilton, <laughs> so uh, I think that's the more urgent one. It is, it is, and I saw. And, and today, I, I'm sure that's front of mind for our premier today is making sure that uh, that there can be a crowd there to see Canada. He might break down the game uh, during the news conference later today. I mentioned it. You get elected to city council in '97. You're on the TTC as well, which I forgot about. Um, and so that that storm hits in 1999. Mel didn't call the military in until two weeks after. The problem seems to be that it just kept snowing after the initial blizzard, David. Well, there were two problems. I mean, it was an extraordinary storm <laughs> like this one, except sort of happening twice or three times. Uh, but the second one was we, the city had just amalgamated, and we hadn't got the snow clearing right yet because we hadn't had to deal with it. And some parts of the city basically had a a system where they would clear the snow, not remove it. So in Montreal, places like that, they pick mm-hmm. up the snow, put it in trucks, and get rid of it. Toronto didn't normally have that problem because we didn't have as much snow. But you can't keep pushing it to the side of the road when you have that sort of volume. That was the underlying problem. I mean, Mel got a lot of flack for calling in the Army. The, the great part of that was uh, Prince Edward Island sent, it, sent us its snow removal people. <laughs> And they, I thought that was fantastic, like sending foreign aid from PEI to Toronto. Yeah, I, I can imagine that phone call. That's almost, well, no, that's not pre-email, but you're like, what, where, when? Like all those journalism questions. That's what we're doing. Um, the the amazing thing about this is also is that y- you you lay that out there. The, where did the mili- 540 soldiers I'm seeing, where did they stay? Who put them up when they were here? Uh, that's actually an excellent question. I I don't know. I can tell you what they did in the street because I uh, I went out and saw it, and the, the PEI guys were in uh, my ward in in Hyde Park Parkdale. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, I assume they were up at Downsview, but that's uh, that was out of my pay grade at the time because I was a councillor. You you leave those things to the mayor's office. Well, you just didn't you didn't have eight burly military guys staying in your basement in your house, but we did we no we did not uh, provide right. that kind of accommodation. It was not required of the councillors of the day. Yeah, we'd watch that show on Netflix, especially for some of the other councillors. Uh, David Miller is our guest on uh, Toronto Today. So this chaos starts to happen. You're on the TTC. Were there the same kind of bus and streetcar issues, David, that we saw Monday and Tuesday with just, just a lot of buses? And there were so many drivers I heard from saying, I was out there eight hours. I can't leave my bus there all by itself. But also no one's coming to, to, to get me a new bus. I, I, I was actually... Um that's the one thing about this storm that's really surprised me, Greg, that that shouldn't happen. I mean, the basic way the city snow clearance works is um, about half half the fleet are city staff and about half are um, contractors. Uh, the main streets are supposed to be cleared first, which are the bus routes. And to have the number of buses get stuck, we saw so, something's gone wrong and I I do hope they do a review after because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the buses can't get through, um, there's all sorts of people that can't get where they need to go, whether it's work or elsewhere. Um, and they're also so big that they, they clog up the roads. And uh, I don't think we should have seen uh, anywhere near this this kind of level of problem. 
Some have suggested, I mean, the union almost, some members of the, the TCC union, the, the drivers said, well, should we have even gone out? They kind of have to go out, but it's the perfect storm, isn't it? Because we've got all these labor shortages. So there actually were less buses and less streetcars operating, same as Metrolinx with GO trains, with some of the staff shortages for either either COVID or workers that didn't get vaccinated. So um, again, it, it was a culmination of a lot of things going wrong over a, over a, a morning commute on a Monday. I think management of everything right now, uh, public sector and private sector, are all tired. They're tired because of COVID. People are sick. It's really difficult. So I, I, I don't think we can second guess the management decisions. But, you, you know, once you got a few buses stuck, you, you do think you need to make sure that uh, the city's able to get the plows out on the main roads on particular bus routes and, and maybe train, change your strategy. Uh, because, you know, once they're stuck, they're not in use to anyone, obviously. And, you know, the the city sh- the can get to the main roads. That was a huge storm. And sometimes you just have to say, look, it's going to take some time, and it means we all need to change. We all need to have a snow day, essentially. Yeah, I mean, sometimes Mother Nature does indeed win. Your, your reaction to the DVP and the Gardner both being closed in your in your lifetime, whether whether it's been in municipal politics or not, you probably could never have foreseen a weather incident that, that does both those things. No, that that's unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. And and there was no like I as I said Monday, Sanders, Salters, those don't make a difference. If the volume of snow is what it is, all that matters is whether it's plowed or not. You can't there's no point in putting salt or sand down on two feet of snow. There's no point. Well, if, if you go to Ottawa or Montreal, Greg, they've got giant snowblowers that, that are incredibly effective in these sorts of circumstances. I mean, the reality is in Toronto that we've chosen not to spend the money because it's so rare. But I think the consequence of that is when you have a big storm like this, you know, almost the whole system has to say, I, I was only half kidding about snow days. Almost everybody has to say this, this really is a snow day because we don't have the equipment to get the streets uh clean enough quickly enough for people to be on them so you know today we're going to shut down and i'm not suggesting the ttc should be shut down but that kind of thinking should should inform what's going on last thing you're obviously a tremendous tremendous uh you know educator and advocate for things we have to do to fix the climate crisis you wrote a book in itself called solved about how all of our great cities and i think we would class toronto as one of them how we need to make big time pivots not just minor adjustments public transit is is vital in that and whether it's been the pandemic or whether it's just people have to rely on this we need to provide more service more buses more streetcars more access to go places um so monday i you know I hope that doesn't stick in the public's uh, craw or consciousness how vital public transit is for us over the next several decades. I think it's a really bad thing for public transit when it has system-wide problems like this because people take it when it's reliable. And, you know, people love love streetcars, the people who take them. Uh, Not every driver does, but people who take them love them uh, because they're reliable. So it's a really core thing. Public transit has to be reliable, and I couldn't agree more. We need way more service, way more transit, uh, more frequently for the convenience of people. And then you have environmental benefits from that. And a moment like this where there's a wobble uh, sends a really bad message, unfortunately. Not awesome. Um, We'll have a happier chat next time around, but uh, I thank you for uh, for coming on and sharing some of your recollections and advice for us going forward. That's just as important. Uh, David Miller, thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure, Greg. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Toronto Mayor, uh, former Toronto Mayor David Miller, our guest. So, Christine Elliott, I watched uh, some of this yesterday, and this started to make the rounds. And some of what she said yesterday, beyond, um, you know, kind of the obvious stuff you'd hear, we're doing this, we're doing that, glimmer of hope, um, and that has to do with the lifting of restrictions. She kind of made a call out at the end of her news conference about misinformation by physicians specifically. Here's what it sounded like. I want to respond to some extremely concerning reports that some doctors are spreading misinformation about vaccines. At a time when it's never been more important for Ontarians to have confidence in the safety and effectiveness of vaccines, this is unacceptable. I will be sending a letter to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario 
urging them to do everything that is possible to put an end to this behavior. They should consider all options in doing so, including reviewing the licenses of physicians found to be spreading misinformation. Okay, there's a lot there, and uh, and that was certainly um, a call out that was significant. Where I where I am on this is it was patently obvious, and it became patently obvious. She was referencing um, a study done that ended up being on GlobalNews.ca, an investigative report. But uh, I do think there are experts that we can talk to about this. There's a great amount of debate right now about a third booster shot for younger men and teenagers. Those are legitimate conversations to have. So I I, I get where she was going. I wish she had made it clear, um, to, and maybe by naming names, she's amplifying that, and that would be the argument against it. But I, I think that's a little bit of a slippery slope because there have been a lot. Well, if you get the vaccine, you won't be able to transmit it to anybody. Well, well, that's been changed and, and we've got a different perspective on that as time has moved along. Yes, get vaccinated. Yes, the majority of people that are uh, having bad health outcomes are unvaccinated. And if you're writing, you know, fake vaccine uh, certificates or you're saying that, well, you know, you don't want to vaccinate your kid because it'll kill them. Obviously, that's clear misinformation and not under the guise of debate. Uh, our next guest uh, wrote the story on uh, and did all the all the legwork. And the story is up on globalnews.ca. And it's great to have her on this morning. She is Ashley Stewart. Ashley, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much for making the time for me. No problem. Good morning. How are you? I'm really good. Now, now, when um, the health minister goes there at the end of her uh, her talk yesterday, um, I don't know if you were watching it live or your phone started buzzing. You're like, that's probably reference to my story. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's a bit surprising. We we were kind of chasing them for comment at the same time. So having them come out and say it to the whole of the province was um, was a surprise. Is that, do I have that accurate? Is that a fair statement that um, there's a lot of debate about, you know, efficacy right now? There was so much debate in the spring about should I get the mRNA vaccine? Is the AstraZeneca good enough? There have been a lot of conversations about it. But what you researched and probably what Ms. Elliott is referring to isn't that. Um, it's, It's about pure and utter malicious misinformation put forward by medical professionals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this this misinformation has been flying around for the past two years. It's been flying around before that. People have been anti-vaccines for, I mean, ever since the polio vaccine. This has been going on for a long time. The difference is that we have social media now to amplify that misinformation and allow it to grow a lot louder and allow those connections to kind of be made that are a lot stronger. So these physicians have been have been sharing, I mean, complete, misinformation, some research that is at odds of um, the research that's coming out from Health Canada. Uh, they've been issuing fake, false medical exemptions. And no one has really addressed it yet because everyone's too scared to give them a platform. You know, like a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of um, other journalists I've spoken to have just said, we don't want to put them in mainstream media because then we're allowing their views to be shared. But they're, they're already sharing their views. You know, like Telegram exists, Instagram exists, Facebook exists, and it's all over there. So I think the best thing we can be doing is kind of debunking what they're saying. Ashley Stewart is our guest uh, from Global News on Toronto Today on uh, on 640 Toronto. Um, and that story is up on globalnews.ca, uh, revealed how a web of Canadian doctors are undermining the fight against COVID-19. With what the health minister says yesterday, Ashley, do you think that that, that fight gets amplified a little bit? We've already obviously had, and you started your story with it, that uh, there have already been superior court hearings from the CPSO, which is the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, against four specific doctors. And... Uh, and there's, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, acrimony, let's put it that way, from the organization towards these doctors for for doing things like, as I mentioned off the top, and issuing false medical exemptions, et cetera, et cetera. It's a hard one. I, I mean, it, it's great that um, Christine Elliott was spoke out about this, but at the end of the day, there was no solution provided. She said that she would be writing a letter to the CPSO to say, do everything within the, in your power to um, address this. But the CPSO are saying, are, are saying that they're already doing that. They then, after that story came out and after Christine um, said what she did yesterday, I was told by the CPSO that there are currently 40 physicians who are currently under investigation for COVID-related issues. That's, I mean, that's a big number. That's a lot, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of people who are out there um, 
actively trying to persuade people not to get the COVID vaccine when we've all been told for two years that that's the only way out of the pandemic. So there, there still is not any solution on, on, on how to address what these people are saying or any kind of road that doesn't take two years to revoke someone's medical license. Has Omicron changed a lot of the conversation in in your mind or, you know, as a human being or as a journalist, as you're compiling all the information for this story and talking to your sources? I I think I might have said three weeks before Christmas, and I was a little nervous saying it on the air because I didn't want to be misinterpreted, especially as somebody who's gotten who's all up to date with vaccinations. But I said on the on the air on this show, the vaccination protects me. It doesn't protect you from me. We are seeing more uh, spread among vaccinated people. We are seeing more vaccinated people go to the hospital. But that's that's more about circumstance and uh, and, you know, health conditions than it is like I I don't have a doubt about what the vaccines did for me. So there's been a little bit of a, a change in the in the on the landscape of what what public health officials said the vaccine would do. But again, that's not really what what you're addressing, or I hope what Christine Elliott was addressing yesterday. Agree. I, I totally think that's such a valid point as well. Is like we're not telling people not to question what's going into their body and not to be doing their due diligence and researching and things like that. It is. I mean, the fact that we're having to have three boosters, four boosters. People are fed up. People are questioning mm-hmm. why they have to keep going back to get the same vaccine that's supposed to be protecting them. There's also a lot of people that don't understand the science behind the vaccine and why you need to have um, however many boosters to kind of ensure that your protection is as high as it could be. So I think there's quite a difference between debating and kind of trying to understand the science behind it and, as, as you said before, maliciously spreading completely false information, you know, just just to get, I don't know what it is, there's a profit, people, some doctors are chasing profits because they're making money from issuing false exemptions and things like that. But there's a whole di- a lot of different motives at play that are not just having a healthy debate around the vaccine. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, I'm watching, uh, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the series um, Dope Sick with Michael Keaton. Have you watched that? I haven't, no. It's really good, and it talks about the Oxycontin crisis, right, and and the opioid crisis hitting certain, kind of very much from the beginning with Purdue Pharma. And uh, I don't liken it to what we're dealing with now, um, and I don't question, again, the science behind the vaccines. But I, but just watching it, it does tell you that uh, you do have to ask. You really do have to own, ask your own questions. And I've leaned on so many epidemiologists uh, and so many people, and and so many opinions have sort of pivoted. I don't think a, a, a straight one eighty pivot, but their opinions adjust as time goes on. And and as I referenced before, we we had you the um the, the all the debate in the spring about what vaccine. There were a lot of people who got AstraZeneca here in Ontario who kind of felt burned by it a little bit later, thinking, can I cross the border? Can I do this? The U.S. doesn't even recognize this. And um, and it's important to, to listen to those people and, and reassure them that they probably did what was the right thing at the right time. But where do we go from here? Exactly. And I think that's the thing is it's such an evolving situation. The science is evolving. The virus is evolving. Mm-hmm. All we can do is do what I mean, it sounds very much like we're being told to be sheep and just do what we're told. But that is. The best, the best course of action, as we're being repeatedly told, is just to get vaccinated. The vaccina- vaccinations have little side effects. There are side effects to anything, obviously. The um, anti-vaccine causes are obviously seizing on those those um, small numbers of side effects kind of thing and saying that it's proof that the vaccines don't work or are going to kill you or whatever. But the, it is the best course of action. It's the, the one thing we've been told to, is to to get protected is to get vaccinated. So, I mean, this is the thing. I think that's the only thing we can kind of do at the moment. And then to have people, have doctors who have these medical licenses who are still active, who are being held up as experts, telling people not to, it's just it's lending weight to the anti-vaccine cause. And it's really... It's just kind of doing the whole thing a disservice, you know? I think it's phenomenal journalism on your part. I got one more question for you, and, and I know we're tight for time, but but many of these doctors, lawyers, do feel like they have a case to keep their medical license. Their argument would be, as the science evolves, opinions change, and, and they feel a certain way about this, but they feel they 
still feel going to court into courtrooms and going uh, into tribunal boards that they have a case to keep their medical license, don't they? They do, and there have been there have been many legal challenges that have been filed. Obviously, not a lot has come from most of them. And I mean, the, the Ontario doctors that I referenced in my story yesterday, there was a um, decision that came out last night that actually said that they have to comply with investigations and hand over all of their um, patient records and things like that from the false medical exemptions that they've been accused of giving out. So the law very much is not in their favor at the moment. Ashley Stewart, our guest from Global News. Uh, like I said, it's it's fantastic journalism. I'm glad you did it. I'm glad the Minister of Health said what she said yesterday. Uh, again, it, you know, it's it's so much has evolved, and and you call out people when they they do the right things, and and you question people when you're not sure they've got all the evidence. But it's it's just fantastic journalism, and it's helpful for all of us. Thank you for making the time for me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Let me get to the story uh, that's in my own backyard that is interesting um it was in the toronto sun and brian Lilly wrote about it but there's not many people disputing that this is true here's the headline ndp candidate supported nazi naval officer unfit to run okay um so the ndp in ajax is going to run uh, out steve Parrish. okay uh he's the former mayor longtime mayor his dad was mayor everybody knows who he is he was mayor of ajax from 1995 until 2018 sean collier who uh who i know has uh and i think he's done a really really good job in ajax through the pandemic i think he's been accountable accessible um friends of mine have said can you ask the mayor about this and he always gives me an answer when i message him so he's an, a very available politician here um so steve parish left the uh he didn't he didn't lose he just didn't run in 2018 when sean collier did okay with me so far uh rod phillips is the mp for that riding rod phillips announced last week on friday he's not going to seek re-election as steve pakin from tv ontario said yesterday there's a lot to that particular scenario now Steve Parrish running. So we don't know who the conservative candidate is. The NDP is going to run Parrish. Um, a street at one point was named after a man named Hans Langsdorf. Now, he commanded a German battleship when it was engaged in battle with the HMS Ajax, which our uh, fun little town is named after. The Ajax suffered damage. Seven men were killed. Longsdorf decided um, to scuttle the ship, commit suicide and whatnot. Here's his quote. I can now... Only now prove by my death that the fighting services of the Third Reich are ready to die for the honor of the flag. I shall face my fate with firm faith in the cause and the future of the nation and of my Fuhrer. So it's really hard to to consider that he was like, you know, just kind of going along to get along in uh, World War II. I think that's really fair to say. So Parrish defended Langsdorf, and Parrish does not deny this. And Ajax City Council said, why don't we take his name off the street that he was once honored with? Parrish is like... Well, no. Um, let's keep it as it is. Andrea Horvath, the NDP leader, has put comment in on this and uh, and and kind of sent a statement from Parrish. Here's Parrish's statement. Then I'm going to get to our guest, I promise, but there's a lot leading up to this. It would be highly unfair and inaccurate to suggest the people supporting the name at the time, including the local Royal Canadian Legion branch and HMS Ajax veterans, were in any way supporting or condoning the Nazis or any of their atrocities. That's Parrish's statement. The way I look at it is, yes, of course, hashtag of course, but then don't back naming the street after the guy. That's pretty simple. If you see Hitler as my guy and a prophet and you want to die for the Third Reich, okay, you said it. You didn't not say it. We don't have to have a street named after you in our town. And our next guest is the liberal candidate uh, for that MPP seat heading into the next election. Uh, she put a statement out on this, but we want to have a conversation with her about it. She is Amber Bowen. Uh, you're on Toronto Today. Amber, thank you very much for making the time for me. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. Uh, it's Greg, actually, uh, Amber, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we're getting off to a start here. Are you my neighbor? Where, where do you live? I am your neighbor. I'm in North Ajax. <laughs> so, okay, I'm in South. I'm down by Rotary Park. So, uh, you know, if I ever have an issue with the slides or, or uh, you know, anything like that, or, or that cool bridge that's right that's that's been that took two years to build, uh, you know, I'm calling you if you get elected. Okay. Absolutely. You'll see me and the kids and my husband 
riding by on our bike, you'll probably see two dogs in my basket. On- <laughs> well, no, it's me. Um, all right. What about this? Uh, when when did this first sort of land on your desk, on your plate? Uh, Steve's uh, support, Mr. Parrish's support for this street being named after a Nazi officer. So back in 2007, when Steve Pear was mayor of Ajax, he and city council voted to name this street after you know, not, Nazi naval officer Hans Longdorf. I didn't move to Ajax until later in 2008. So by that time, the street was already named. It's only in 2018 when a new mayor was elected and a local resident started an online petition along with uh, Rabbi Bornstein from the Chabad Jewish Center of Durham, a Holocaust survivor and others in the community, that this name piece really came up again. Um, in 2020, Steve Parrish actually came out of retirement and fought those community members and that online petition to keep the street name by giving a deposition at City Council. And it's only this week when the articles have come back up that it's really struck me about, you know, the critical issue that, we, that we're facing at Ajax about these kind of decisions. And he just announced he's running as the NDP candidate a week ago, two weeks ago? Yes, I think it was a week ago. And um, you put out a statement uh, documenting um, that your grandparents uh, were Holocaust survivors and survived Auschwitz. So this is this is beyond, you know, right or wrong for you. This is incredibly personal and familial to you. It is. But, you know, as a as a mother of two, as a granddaughter of two Holocaust survivors out of Auschwitz, you know, when six million Jews weren't as lucky, it's it's a really serious issue. And given what we saw take place in Texas this weekend, and that in Ajax, this conversation is still being, you know, balanced out. I think we still have really important work to do. And, you know, as the you know, next elected official in Ajax, I really look forward to supporting the people of Ajax to, sh- to ensure that we maintain an inclusive and diverse community. My job is to adju- advocate for Ajaxians, for good education, for healthcare environment, and well-paying jobs here in Ajax. We can't be distracted by things that are representative and hurtful to our community. The columnist in The Sun says that uh, Parrish isn't fit to run based on this. Do you have an opinion on that? You know, that's a discussion between him and the NDP party. This is a democracy, and anyone can run. But I do, you know, I do have concerns about this candidate's decisions, and quite frankly, I'm concerned about Ms. Horwath's silence on this issue. You know, it's it's deeply concerning and, frankly, unacceptable that there was a conscious decision by this candidate to support and celebrate by honoring a Nazi soldier, by naming a street after him here in Ajax. And, you know, what's most ridiculous about this, this issue is that the street is now named Crocker Drive. And Crocker Drive is actually named after two fallen Canadian soldiers, one on the HMS Ajax and one on the HMS Exeter. It was never about having enough names. No, and I and it's weird. I, I moved to Ajax just after you did in uh, 08, and we lived up by, uh, I'll tell you where, uh, Rossland and Seeger. We rented a house there, and then we bought a house down by Rotary Park. But as you know, when you walk through that park, if you go to the end of Harwood, there's a tremendous monument. There's a lot of history there. When my kids were little, they'd ask questions about it. So it's the town itself, for people who don't know it, has a, has a lot of heritage to do with that particular ship, and, and there's a lot of... There's a lot of historical documentation, so it people's people's knowledge of the history of it is very present. Absolutely, that that's a huge landmark. When people come to visit Rotary Park, we have a beautiful spot on Lake Ontario. When people come there, that is a really good place to have conversations with your family, so that we don't forget our history. Okay, Amber Bowen's our guest, who's the uh, Liberal candidate for Ajax. Um, when I, you know, we got to talk some politics here, but so when Rod Phillips says he's not running last week, what was your reaction? He's he's well known. We know what happened last uh, last Christmas time. He held on to his seat, although portfolios changed. wasn't the finance minister anymore, and he's the current minister of long term care. When he says I'm out, I'm not running again. How did you react? You know, I'm, I'm very proud to be the Ontario Liberal candidate here in Ajax. And as an elementary school teacher, as a mom, I'm really just concerned with making sure that I'm here to advocate for the needs of Ajaxians, to make sure that we are continuing to advocate for the important things that we know are critical to not only Ajax, but our province. Health care, um, public education, keeping our environment safe, and, and really helping to provide good-paying jobs and supporting small businesses. That's all I'm really focused on between now and Election Day. Amber Bowen, our guest on Toronto today. We'll have to have a longer conversation about education at some point in time, but you are you are a school teacher. What grade do you teach? 
I'm actually an elected executive officer with the Elementary Teachers of Toronto, but I've been um, a kindergarten teacher and a longtime special education teacher in the elementary panel. What was the uh, general consensus from teachers you spoke to yesterday about the return to the classroom yesterday? You know, teachers are just thrilled to be able to be face-to-face with students again, but the important issue here is that there are so many measures that could have been put in to make sure that not only our students but our teachers and our education workers are safe, and those pieces haven't quite been put where they need to be. We know that small class sizes, proper ventilation are critical to making sure that our students can stay in school because we know that that's where they really, uh, they really need to be, and making sure that we have access to rapid tests and we have access to PCR tests if needed and kids are able to stay home. You know, many parents do not have paid sick days, which really hard, like, makes it hard for students to be able to stay home when they're sick and to be isolated. Things could have been done better, and I know that under Stephen Del Duca's leadership, come June, we will be making better decisions for our public education. Yeah, last thing from me, he had advocated for a, a mandate for vaccinations from 5 to 11-year-olds. He and I uh, don't agree on that, at least for this coming fall. Where do you stand on it? You know what? My husband and I are... are vaccinated and boosted and both my children are fully vaccinated but what about mandating it for all kids 5 to 11 by next fall the important thing is that we're making schools as safe as possible so that we can keep our kids in school but you're not i i think it's fair to ask if you're for a mandate or not you're going to get asked that in a couple months from now you know what i support the fact that Stephen del duca is working to make sure that we have the safest possible uh, environment for our students and for our education workers and keeping them all safe when we have so many young children in school it's important to make sure that we are keeping up with vaccinations i appreciate you coming on the show this morning and thank you very much for bringing light to this issue and i hope we get to chat again and uh any any resident of ajax is a friend of mine so thank you for coming on the show fantastic i look forward to seeing you out here in ajax you bet thank you amber bowen uh is running for uh the liberal seat in ajax where rod phillips says he won't run uh, a lot of people made the point on Monday when uh, Doug Ford was uh, driving around, and he was, and um, I didn't talk. I, th- there's things that uh, I just didn't see as uh, it's significant. I get it. But guess what? Um, this is what the Fords do. This is what his brother did. This is why they were famous. Maybe it has a different feel. Maybe it had a different feel when Rob, the late Rob Ford, did things like this than Doug. I don't know. Um, but But – People pointed out on Monday, is he out there because polls are low for him, that there's a certain amount of approval. But approval ratings don't always transmit into how election results go, okay? And that's been the case south of the border. I've watched that for years, whether I live there or not. Um, You can't tell much from polls uh, these days, except with our next guest. And we talked to him a fair bit before the federal election, and basically uh, they nailed it. They nailed it, that there wasn't going to be much change from the 2019 federal election. Uh, David Coletto is uh, CEO of Abacus Data, and he joins me now. It's great to have you on and great to have a conversation again how are you doing i'm well greg thanks for having me good to talk to you happy new year absolutely same same to you um let me you know quarterback this and set this out for where the seats stand right now conservatives have 69 seats they've lost seven seats since the election through either defections some vaccination issues some some uh some other issues the ndp with 40 seats and the liberals with seven green obviously has one um what's some of the data telling you about who's poised to make the most gains in june well, we're seeing, um, you know, when we compare where we are today with the last provincial election, the, the, the PCs are down just slightly. They're at 37 percent. The Liberals are up a lot. Um, they're up up into second in our poll at 28 percent. That's an eight point gain from, from from 2018. And the New Democrats, as a result, are down nine points uh, into third at 25 percent. And so when you look at those numbers, provincial, provincially and then some of the regional breakouts, the PCs right now are still in a really good place to win uh, certainly the most seats, maybe, I, I think, a good chance to win a majority again um, because of the vote splits that are happening on, on kind of the left or center left. Because the NDP and the Liberals haven't consolidated yet um, that support, that anti-Ford, anti-PC vote, the PCs right now benefit from just going up the middle. And, and again, their, vote, their vote's down, but it's not like cratering or, or, or anywhere where they, I think, are really worried about you know where where their vote could go now it's still early but yeah um, given everything that's happened with mr ford and the government and the pandemic um you know the, the tories will look at that number and say that's not bad 
a few months out from an election. Well, to point out, they can they can afford to lose uh, six more seats, hold 63, and that still ends up being a majority governed for them. And it's probably good news based on your data at Abacus that neither Stephen Del Duke and the Liberals nor Andrea Horvath and the NDP have have exactly taken a rocket ship up. They're kind of they're almost like two 500, you know, football or hockey teams just sort of stuck in the middle there. Not one has surged above the other too much. No, and that's a and that's the most important point, right? You you could be disappointed, you could you know really dislike Doug Ford or the and the incumbents, but if there's no real good alternative, people often just settle for what they know. And and I think you know for for a lot of people, I mean, Doug Ford's a very polarizing figure. There's people who absolutely despise him, can't stand him, can't even imagine when I when I put out a poll, they say how how is this? You know, you must have surveyed you know some 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 small town in Ontario um, because they just can't fathom how anyone could support him. But the, the opposite is, is that he's also really liked by a, by a large number of people who find him very authentic and, and, you know, maybe not the, the best administrator, but somebody that they can relate to. Um, Doug Ford is even, but there's no like deep, deep kind of desire for change. And that's something our, our, our survey showed when Kathleen Wynne ran in 2018, 63% of Ontarians definitely wanted a change in government. Today, mm. that number is 50%. Now, it's still relatively mm. high, but it's not high enough that you've got a whole bunch of people willing to vote for anything in order to get Doug Ford out. Um, and so, yeah, Stephen Del Duca and, and Andrea Horvath still have a lot of work to do if Here, they're going to become that alternative. Uh, David Coletto, our guest uh, from Abacus Data on Toronto Today. Here's what I call something called the restaurant principle. And I don't know if I have a Malcolm Gladwell-esque book in me, uh, David, uh, but I'm, you know, I got at least a couple pages. And if you and I go to, uh, if things are wide open, we go to the Loose Moose and have a couple beers and everything's great. Well, there's not going to be an 11 tweet thread about it from us the next day. But if the service is terrible, if we fall down a staircase, if people spill beer on us, we might talk about it. So social media, explain to our audience, because it's pat obvious what a bad bad guide social media is with 74 percent of, of adults never even being on it to right. predict elections whether it was trump in 2016 whether it was brexit in the uk whether it was even you know people who supposedly all hate justin trudeau and then they he ends up getting exactly the kind of votes and the kind of support he did two years early it's a really bad guideline to think well the election's going to go one way or another it's really bad for, for all the reasons you described. I love the analogy. <laughs> and it's also bad because we typically surround ourselves or follow people, and there's, there's academic research that shows us who we typically agree with. So if you're somebody who doesn't like Doug Ford, odds are you're following other people who don't like Doug Ford. And so we live in this bubble where we actually, you know, you always hear it, I don't know anybody voting liberal, or I don't know anybody voting conservative. Well, there are millions of people across the province who are going to vote for all of those parties, um, and we just have to realize that, that that sometimes our own social circles are much more in line with our own views. And and so, um, you know, if you're somebody who, who can't imagine Doug Ford getting reelected, uh, it's, it's highly likely that it could happen. But it's also if you're somebody who wants him to be reelected, I think our polls suggest that, that the, the road to reelection isn't mm. isn't going to be smooth, that there are there are a lot of people who, who think he hasn't done a very good job on some really important issues, the pandemic being one of them. And, and they're going to be looking for an alternative who they feel confident can do a better job. i got 45 seconds here. You note that a majority is possible, but obviously people will raise the specter. And I lived through this in 1985 when David Peterson and Bob Ray pushed Frank Miller and the Conservatives out with a coalition government. That's certainly something that gets talked about. They can, they can amass the numbers to do just that, but they'd have to combine, wouldn't they? They would, and, and it'd have to sort of... Um, you know, the seats would have to fall out in a way that, that, that one of the opposition parties, let's say, who, who maybe could, could pull that off, could, could really, I think, justify it. I don't see that right now, mm -hmm. uh, but, but it's possible given the dynamics that we're seeing. I think what's more likely to happen if, is one of the two opposition parties sort of breaks out from the pack and becomes that, that alternative. I think they're both trying to figure out how to do that, and if they are successful – there's a chance that, that yeah. enough people will rally around them to, to stop Doug Ford from winning again. You can go to abacusdata.ca and find out more. David, I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, thanks for not, – not all my analogies land, so thanks for saying one of them actually has in the last several weeks. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Greg. Take care. <laughs> David Coletto from uh, abacusdata.ca. 
Thanks very much for listening to the podcast today. We're back with a live show tomorrow on 640 Toronto to wrap up the week and a newsworthy week it's been at that. Lots of reaction to Doug Ford's Thursday announcement of restrictions being lifted on January 31st and beyond. We'll be all over that in the morning, 5.30 to 9, right here on 640 Toronto. And you can find us right here where you find your podcasts again just about an hour after the show. Thanks very much for listening.